This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Well, there's a lot of excitement and concern around AI at the moment, where and when it should or shouldn't be used in our lives. But what about where and when it should or shouldn't be used in our death? Death and the digital age, from AI and forensics to your digital footprint after death, what is the future of death and technology? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, joining you from ABC Warnable, Daniel Miles. Daniel, today is going to be pretty wild, really, when you think about the, the topic of AI and death and our own afterlife and what mm. is already happening. Yeah, good morning, Rochelle. I'm equally excited and petrified about what we're going to learn over the next sort of hour. Um, as you said in the intro there, we're talking so much about how we use AI, where we use AI, but and a lot of it comes from a fear perspective. I think of, you know, what if our robot overlords fully overtake us one day and, and we're left as the, the human subservient slaves. But there's also so much good <laughs> that can be done yes. with AI. Yes. And that's one thing... I'm really interested in unpacking, especially when we talk about how it can make us feel so much better in some of our more vulnerable moments. Things like palliative care, there's so many advances being made to actually take what is a really traumatic time and make it a little bit more human. But I guess the other thing is dying in a digital age, are we ever truly dead online? I mean, I'm sure all of my data's out there somewhere. My likeness is up in the cloud just waiting for AI to take it over and make me an online shoe salesman or something. So <laughs> I'd buy in, your shoes. I'd yeah, buy your shoes from anyone. But you're <laughs> so right in that it's already there and out there. A lot of it is fear. But then you mentioned the mm-hmm. word trauma as well. And where can technology, where can AI come in to try and take some of that trauma away, whether it be from the person themselves or those who love the person that has died mm-hmm. for those that are working in the field of forensics and medicine you know where does all of that come into it and then you have ways that we use social media and our digital lives to mm-hmm. grieve as well yep. i find fascinating and that kind of collective grief that we see in a digital world and whether or not that helps as well but we've got so many guests today that specialize in this this is the conversation hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warnable. We are talking death and tech. Everything from AI to virtual reality to your own digital footprint. And Professor Richard Bassard is with you. He's the head of the Department of Forensics Medicine at Monash University. Richard, a warm welcome to the conversation hour. This is such a huge topic. But you in particular at the moment are at the forefront of AI and forensics. You just work around the corner here doing something incredible that we know nothing about. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Goodness me, that's a hard introduction to live up to, Rochelle. Thank you for inviting me on. And Daniel, nice to be here. Um, So, yeah, I'm the Professor of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. I also work at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which is the place where all the deceased people are reported to the state coroner, are admitted for examination to determine cause of death. And we've been working for probably the last three or four years on how machine learning and AI may assist in our work and also may assist in research for developing better techniques as time goes on. Richard, forensic medicine has come a long way since there were cadavers on tables in mm. the 1600s and we're, we've embraced technology, but what, what element of technology do you currently use in the way that you do your job and where do you potentially see it going? So the biggest paradigm shift in forensic medicine in the last 15 years was the introduction of post-mortem CT scanning whereby every single deceased person who's admitted to our care has a full-body CT scan, which shows the internal structure of the body and can show areas that are damaged or areas that are diseased, which may be a cause of death. The impact of that technology has been profound in that before we got our CT scanner in 2000 and 
back in, we got it in 2005. So in 2004, approximately 75 to 80% of people who were admitted to our institute had a full autopsy. And since the, in, since the CT was brought into the building, mm. we're now down to about 45 or 46% of people have a full autopsy. The rest, we can determine cause wow. of death simply on imaging alone. That, I mean, that profound is right. And mm. it's profound in so many ways in, I guess, the, the trauma that is taken out of it for loved ones or for people like yourself that work in this area. But then also, too, in terms of getting an exact cause of death. Like, are you finding that there is more accuracy or that you're able to look at things that you normally wouldn't be able to? Or is that where it starts to get a little bit grey, where you're taking the human instinct and you're taking the Richard Bassard out of it and you're handing it over to a robot? So at the moment, we don't hand anything over to, to the machines to do our diagnoses for us. So all of the CT scans are examined by radiologists and forensic pathologists. And it is true, you can see things on a CT scan that even if you did do a full autopsy, you would not be able to see. So areas of the body that aren't examined, for example, during an autopsy that might hold significant clues as to a cause of death. Um, the biggest boon, though, is the fact that in a lot of cases, we can determine a cause of death. We can see things like coronary artery calcification, ischemic heart disease. We can see things like bleeds in the brain due to a burst aneurysm. We can see all that stuff without having to actually do a physical autopsy on a person. So that enables us to give the coroner a reasonable cause of death. Um, there is always the need. We'll never get autopsy rates down to zero. That will never happen. Um, there's always lots and lots of cases where the only way to get an answer is to a proper physical autopsy. Um, but... We are working on ways that we can reduce the numbers of people that perhaps need an autopsy mm. by being able to mm. use imaging and, in the not-too-distant future, machine learning to help us in our work. Wow. Well, that's the interesting part, isn't it, Richard? From what we can gather at the moment, a lot of the work with autopsies is understanding a cause of death, but how do we go from that causality to learning and helping the living, which is one of the, the key quotes that we've been able to pull out, learn from the dead to help the living? How do we take that information that we have and make it beneficial to those that, you know, uh, are loved ones of the family members who may have similar um, similar diseases or anything or ailments. How do we take machine learning and bring it forward to help those of us that aren't on the table yet, so to speak? Yep. So we already have a pretty good family health um, liaison program at work whereby if we determine, for instance, the classic case would be the young fit person who has a cardiac arrest on the soccer field and nobody knows why he's had that cardiac arrest. Um, we do our investigations and we refer that deceased person's family to the cardiac genetics people who then examine them for cases of um, genetic abnormalities that may predispose the family to having cardiac arrests. Um, so we do that already, but in the future where we're starting to think about um, such matters as Machine learning and machines, pretty much it's a giant pattern recognition machine. It recognises patterns and can draw conclusions from those patterns that people don't see and don't comprehend. And the more data you feed it, the more it recognises patterns that you are looking for and the smarter the machine gets and then it starts to learn itself. Um, so if we can start thinking about how we might harness that technology to recognise patterns in diseases, patterns in injuries, patterns in processes that lead to death, it may help us in the prevention space in terms of being able to do things that will stop people from dying. Do you feel like the area that you're working in at the moment is just like this fast snowball, you know, where it started out maybe slow and now you are on a treadmill just trying to constantly keep up with where this could go? Because when you start to think about where AI and machine learning and forensics could go, it's kind of limitless. It really is, and I sort of talk about this in some of my lectures, but it is in some ways terrifying. I mean, who thought six months ago that you can ask a computer a question and it'll give you an answer in perfect English and you can ask it about anything? Um, so I'm talking about chat GPT, of course. didn't even exist until November last year, and now the world's kind of, you know, thinking about what what 
this technology means for the future. So, and that's just one. But aspect. there's fear in that, right? And yeah. is there fear in your line of work? Are there people that push back and say, "Well, look, this is not what we should be doing, mm. and this could go anywhere." There's a lot of fear around robotics, and, and there AI. is about there is about any technology. Well, maybe it's, it's just us that, and not the, the no, the no, insiders. the friendly people. <laughs> I can tell a story when we first had the CT scanner. We got the funding for it, and it was installed in 2005. And it was kind of seen as this sort of thing that might be nice, might be able to help us in some ways, but some of the old pathologists weren't that keen on using it or learning how to use it or learning how to read the images, so they all thought it wasn't going to be that much of an impact on what we did. Um, Now, if the CT scanner breaks down... um, they won't do autopsies on particular cases because they don't have the imaging. <laughs> so. It's like trying to do research without the internet, yeah, you know, yeah, back in the correct. day. We used to do research I without know. the internet. You exactly. used to go to a library and open books. <laughs> I remember those days. The Richard, Dewey Decimal a- System. Oh, stop it. You're, you're speaking my language now, Richard. Um, is there ever a point that we might get to, though, that there's a danger in machine learning in that field where people actually lose skills that we otherwise farm off to machine learning and we get to a point where we no longer have those abilities anymore? Is that a fear? I don't think so. I don't think that's a fear. In my thinking anyway, it's, I refer to it as human-in-the-loop analytics. So the machine gives you a series of... Di- this is already happening in medicine, by the way, and I'll give you an example, chest X-rays. So radiologists will look at lots and lots of chest X-rays every day, and now they have machines looking at those chest X-rays. And when the radiologist sees the chest X-ray that's been looked at by a machine, the machine will circle the areas it thinks are of concern. But it's always the radiologist who looks at that chest X-ray and makes a diagnosis based on sort of what the machine has showed that person and will confirm that the machine's correct. So there'll always be space for humans in in this space. It's the same with imaging now. We always look at the imaging and the pathologist determines if it can do a cause of death. If we can get machine learning into our post-mortem CT system, it'll be about the machine simply making suggestions, pointing things out that perhaps the pathologist might not see. Professor Richard Bassett is with you. He's the head of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. You're on the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warrnambool. And we're looking at death and technology from AI and forensics through to virtual reality in just a moment and palliative care. Let's talk a little bit about some future work that you're looking at at the moment. And you're, I know you're working with the Department of Defence or the Defence Force in helping with identification in things like mass disasters. Now, that when we talk about trauma and being able to reduce trauma, that would be incredible. What sort of work are you doing there? So I'll start off by telling a bit of a story about my past history. When I went over, when the Boxing Day tsunami happened in Thailand, um, 5,000 people, uh, Phuket, north of north of Phuket, up the Kowlak beachfront, were killed on uh, Boxing Day. And in 2005, early, uh, we were sent up there to start to try the and instigate the identification process. Um, all those people, the cause of death wasn't an issue, so they all drowned, basically. And when they were found in their rooms or on the beaches or in their resorts, deceased... Um, they were all gathered together and taken to one place, which is a Thai tradition. They all go to the Buddhist temple. So all these bodies were taken to a Buddhist temple. And by the time a proper identification um, protocol was arranged and everything got up and running, all those people had started to decompose because it's 40 degrees and they don't have refrigeration in those sort of parts of Thailand and it was hot. So... um, And the identification process in Thailand took a year to identify perhaps two-thirds or three-quarters of the people, Mm -hmm. and it cost probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. There were forensic experts from about 30 countries there, and there was, you know, police forces from all over the world, there was armies from all over the world, so it was really, really massive logistical operation, and... You know, if you think about the dollars that were spent on the identification process compared to the dollars that could have been those dollars being spent on rebuilding communities, for example, Um, it's not a good use of money. So the research we're doing now is looking at facial recognition for deceased people. Uh, Facial recognition itself is a controversial topic. No one likes having their face recognised by some random camera walking down down the street, but it's Mm -hmm. a reality we're in now. And there's certainly areas where it's not that accurate. Um, And it has caused problems in the past in terms of misidentification. But for the deceased people, um, the issue is getting their remains back to their family. So, for example, 
Um, if after Thailand, before all those bodies were gathered up and taken to a Buddhist temple, if someone had simply taken a photograph of each person's face in a correct way so it can be used in a facial recognition algorithm, and then if we had an algorithm that could recognise deceased people because they look different, they might have cuts on their faces, their eyes will be shut, they'll be in strange positions, they won't look the same as they were when they were alive. But there's machine learn. We've done some trials on some machine learning um, protocols, and we think it's possible to create an algorithm that will recognise deceased people. And wow. if we can do that, you think about everyone's got a photograph of themselves somewhere. There's always driver's licence, passport in Southeast Asia and Thailand, for example, it's an ID card. Um, if you can recognise people that quickly using a facial recognition algorithm, think of the money that is saved and the time that is saved in and the trauma and the trauma mm. and returning those bodies back to their back to their loved ones. So, and the extension of that. Now I'm thinking about the mass graves that are all over the world. You know, Ukraine now and Iraq previously and Syria, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people buried in mass graves, probably millions around the world. Families still looking for their remains. Um, all those remains are now skeletal, but we're currently just embarking on a project to know if we can use artificial intelligence, post-mortem CT scanning and DNA information to be able to reconstruct a face on a bare skull that is recognisable to a relative. It's mm. just given me a complete full body I mean, that's really the holy grail and that's, you know... Um, Funding is scarce in this area, so we're always chasing funding to do this sort of research. Um, Why is that, Richard? Is there still an element of fear that's uh, holding funding back? No, no, I just think it's, um, you know, if I want to be really cynical, dead people don't vote. So it's, <laughs> so it's really, really... Research funding is tight at the moment anyway, but it's really complicated and really difficult for us to get funding. Um, we're not doing clinical trials. We're not uh, inventing new drugs for cancer. We're not curing diseases of the living but we're but you're preventing and the work in preventative yeah. medicine is something that we're only really just starting to get our head around Correct. and how much it could save us and how much we should be putting into preventative medicine yeah. we could speak to you all day but one thing that i'll really take away from today's conversation is when we talk about ai or robotics and whether or not they'll take over at the end of the day there's still a human behind it that yeah. is somehow instructing or telling that yep machine what to do and to know that someone has the empathy and the thought and the thought processes that you have when it's working in this area I think that would put a lot of people at ease because when we're talking about autopsies when we're talking about loved ones when we're talking about forensics you need to be a good person I think to do that so because you, you need to do the right thing don't you oh you do yeah you do and it's always I mean that's the whole raison d'etre of why we do our job and it's the same with everyone down at Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and all the people in the Department of Forensic Medicine it's a real focus on doing good for the world I guess is the way you put it doing something good for the world and helping the communities which is what we're paid for um, re-inject a bit of element of fear into <laughs> into yeah. the conversation if I've got a couple of minutes mm. um, the main issue I see with AI and machine learning especially if they're giving answers to really complicated questions and it's a, something in a court of law, you've got the black box effect whereby even the people who write the algorithms don't know exactly how the machine came up with that answer. You can't explain it to a court. How, how did you reach this answer? Well, the black box told me, but I don't know how it works inside. So that's a real issue that we can't actually explain um, how these algorithms give the answer that they do. See, now I'm scared again. Yeah, I'm scared <laughs> again. I was just going to say the same thing, Richard. I was feeling so good for a minute. Do and we the, need to... Does there need to be a permanent harness on the on how intelligent we let artificial intelligence become I think to avoid the gen, that? I think the genie's out of the box, isn't it? I think it yeah. is. I think the genie's out of the box now. I don't oh, think you can. Nothing else. I can see why you are no longer a dentist and that you got into this work because this <laughs> is yes, exactly. far more, interesting. more interesting. Not saying that you don't have good teeth and you make a good dentist. Well, my patients never complain about the bills. So it, wonderful. It's been fascinating. It's been some time with you. We wish you all the best with your work and we'll get you back in another time. Thanks so much. Professor Richard Bassard there, the Head of Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. We're talking death and tech and AI. In just a moment, we'll look at virtual reality and palliative care. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour.
Michelle Hunt and Daniel Miles with you. I'm in Melbourne. Daniel joining you from ABC Warrnambool. This text has just come in for Richard, for Richard Bassett, if you've just joined us. And it says, I went to primary school with Richard. Is it strange to say that I'm proud of him? He is such an interesting person to listen to. That's from Jen. And he is. And it's... Not very often you get to meet people like mm. that, Daniel, where you look at the work that they're doing and you think, wow, there are some fascinating people in our city. There are some incredibly intelligent people in our city doing incredible work as well. This isn't just work to to boost a bottom line. This is work that's going to save our generation and the next generation, but also bring a level of comfort to people in a really tough time. So I think you're right when you say you have to be a really good person to do that kind of work. And if nothing else, I mean, I'm, I'm still petrified about AI after, <laughs> after the end of that discussion in the black box of, you know, Don't the think genie. About that bit. I don't know. But what, what does bring me a level of comfort is that there are good people looking over that work at the same time. And when we talk about death and the grief that we live and the trauma that we can often live as a result, knowing that there are people out there trying to make that a little easier. And another person who is doing that is Lynette Walworth. She's an Australian artist and an Emmy Award winning virtual reality filmmaker. And Lynette, today we want to speak to you about the incredible work that you've been doing over the last couple of years where you've been collaborating uh, with Dr Justin Dwyer from St Vincent's in Melbourne on a pilot project to connect patients with their loved ones, especially during lockdown through virtual reality if they are going through palliative care. Virtual reality and, and palliative care, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. So, um, yeah, it was during lockdown. I had a conversation um, with Dr. Margaret Ross, who also works in the palliative care unit at St. Vincent's, and she was saying to me that at that time, we, you know, the time where people were being given maybe, when were not able to visit a loved one who were who was close to death, and nurses were holding up iPads in front of patients so that loved ones could talk to them and see them. And I come from the world of technology, and I just said, look, I think we can do better than that. Um, uh, virtual reality is a very powerful uh, tool, and what it's powerful for is it gives you presence, so it makes you feel present. And so um, I started talking to Mark and then Justin about um, creating kits that we would give to patients' families that they could take home and place um, let's say, let me explain to you the way our VR camera works just quickly. Wherever the camera is, and picture a soccer ball covered in lenses, that's what a VR camera can look like. So wherever that camera is, that's where you will feel your head to be when you're in the VR headset. So what we were able to do by creating these kits was to allow loved ones to take a camera home, place it perhaps in a position where that person, now in a palliative care ward, all alone during COVID, the place where they most would have loved to sit in their lounge room, say, with their dog at their feet, with their partner sitting beside them, reading them a book. We place the camera exactly there Mm. so that then we could upload that footage into the person wearing the headset in the palliative care ward and they would feel themselves to be back in that familiar environment amongst their family and not separated from them. And so it was a way of creating connection at a time when we were disconnected. Lynette, that gives me chills, especially when you think back to how traumatic it was for so many people during the pandemic Mm. to be saying goodbye uh, to an iPad screen with a nurse or doctor that's completely covered in from head to toe in, in PPE. Yeah. What was some of the reactions that people have been giving you, those people who are in palliative care or, or even their families, when they have that chance to sit in a familiar space or a familiar room, what have they told you? How does it make them feel? So, I mean, this is where VR is so powerful and I've had the experience myself where you forget. You forget mm. that you're in a headset, you forget you're not there. And uh, Dr. Dwyer um, um, and Marg used this um, with our first patient who was called Tammy and her young children used the technology so that they could... So, And the first time they used it, they created a dinner party for her. Mm-hmm. 
which she could not be at, where she got to see a, a baby that had been born into the family that she hadn't met, mm. where her where her son could play the piano for her as though she was sitting beside him. And those moments, though virtual, still create real memories. And that's where it's a very powerful and very beautiful use of the technology. It's no longer an artist or a filmmaker creating it. It's family working to give experiences back to family who can't be present. Um, and I was most fascinated by one of the patients we spoke to who who's, who said that, well, and this is why it's still being used and St Vincent's is doing ongoing work with this even though we're not in lockdown because many people in palliative care, one of the worst things for them is they feel removed from yeah. the flow of their life. It's and what this does is place you back in your life. Lynette Walworth is with you, an Australian artist and Emmy Award-winning VR filmmaker. And the doctors that she's referring to, who she collaborated with from St Vincent's, uh, Dr Justin Dwyer and Dr Margaret Ross, in a pilot project to connect patients with their loved ones through virtual reality during lockdown. I wonder, Lynette, too, when... You know, you've spoken to the doctors about how this then helps with having a better death. So death is traumatic, especially if you know that you're dying and the thought Mm. process that you may have and you're in palliative, right? So, you know, Mm. and anyone that's lived with someone through palliative care, it can often be a, a drawn out and stressful process. How much does it make that experience easier and better for the patient who is terminal and for the family members i think i i think we're yet to explore all of those potential benefits from it what we do know is that it removes the sense of isolation it removes and also once people can could come and visit again what was interesting is some of our patients said when someone's visiting you in the hospital it's not like real communication in the sense that you're the focus of the conversation and it's about and it's an un it's an unusual situation it's not like normal flow of 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 conversation so what our patients loved is that they could just be through the virtual headset watching a family doing the ordinary things of mm. life yeah I think where it's helpful and where I've imagined it could be very helpful, I thought about it for my own dad who actually died last year and he was in a care home and he couldn't leave. He actually couldn't get out of his bed. And I imagined if I could take him virtually into a church as though he was sitting in a church again, that would have been one of the greatest a solace for someone like him who was missing that familiar place that had been important to him his whole life. And I think we can't underestimate what that might mean for patients who are facing the end of their life to go to those places that give their heart strength. Mm. And I think that's something that's really resonating on the text line Ines from Melbourne's sent in. I'm almost in tears after hearing that. VR for palliative care. In fact, now I'm tearing up. And I've, I've, <laughs> I'm the same. I've got the same sort of oh, chills. absolutely. Lynette, where can we take this? This is yeah. the first part of a world-first trial mm. and it's mm. working with things that have been filmed. Is there the technology available that instead of having something pre-recorded and capturing those special moments, you can then take that camera and and run it in a live situation. So instead of having to pre-record a dinner party, they could feel like they're actually there at that dinner party? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's already probably possible now. We worked with a wonderful Melbourne company, Foria, and Joseph Purdom from Foria was our technology guru who helped to deliver these kits. And and even when we were talking about this now, um, over 18 months ago, jo- Joseph was saying um, it won't be long before we could just go live where we don't have to upload um, a pre-recorded um, um, experience and and that will be where the technology wow. will take us and and so yes but I'm I also want to say there's something about the considered nature uh, you know we all know what's difficult at end of life is having those important conversations there's things we want to say but it's hard to say it feels awkward the interesting thing about this technology is it allows you including the patient to deliver a message 
via a virtual form that feels like you're saying it to the person in real time, but actually has allowed you to think and plan what you want to say. And one of our patients particularly, one of Justin's patients particularly wanted to use the technology for that. Are many people like yourself, Lynette, working in this area of filmmaking? Because it's incredible and it feels like you're this lone filmmaker (laughs) in this space. And I just wonder what it could be like if more people thought down this line and created work in this area and funded this area. Are many people wanting to work in it? Well, I mean, in this, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm a really... No, but I know you, but it's a a coordinator. um, (laughs) Yeah, I think it's just an area I care very much about. I care very much about helping people at end of life. And I... I think, and there are wonderful, and we and we got received wonderful support for this. I think the only limitation is it could be rolled out actually widely, and hopefully after the St Vincent study, there's a way of sh- sharing that more broadly. We're certainly talking to a couple of um, um, interested partners overseas who also want to use do the same sort of trial but the technology is there it's actually very easy it's become much more affordable as happens with tech and it's just it was just a way of thinking the script instead of me making the footage the creating the imagery mm. um, giving it the, to the idea of having it in real time as well you mentioned your dad Lynette and taking him to church and look I was lucky enough that when my mum was dying I knew she wanted to go in a hot air balloon and we managed to do it together oh. but I could see something like this working that because a lot of the times people don't get to do what they hoped to do and that you could then do that. So let's say Mm. I I wasn't able to do that for my mum if she was bed bound, then you could maybe take her in that hot air balloon virtually. Yeah, you would take her. You would go in the yes, hot air balloon. Yes, I would still be panicking. But... Your mum, you'd have the camera on a tripod. Exactly. exactly. right. We, we, we dress, uh, it sounds strange, but we dress the tripod in the person's clothing. So when they look down at themselves in the hospital room, it, it looks like themselves. So we try as much as possible to give this sense that they really are present there. And the mind will go with that. One of the patients one of uh, Justin's other patients, I, when we spoke with her, she talked about sitting um, by her back door, looking at her garden mm. and a pond that she had, that was, she said she would sit every morning. And she said to me, I heard the birds singing. Were they there? Probably not, but I could mm. hear them. That's just that visceral creation that you have in your mind from being somewhere that is so just deeply ingrained in your psyche. Yeah. Um, We're speaking with Lynette Walworth, an Australian artist and Emmy Award-winning VR filmmaker. Lynette, you said this isn't filmmaking, but part of me feels like this is the most intimate film that you could ever make for someone. (laughs) In a sense, is there also an element that this is something that you could have and have forever? I'm I'm, I'm a Mm. bit of a novice when it comes to VR, Mm. but is this a file that, you know, you can then pull off the shelf and say, you know, this is my last moment with you know, with Grandpa and I've got this recorded in in a room that I can go back to whenever I feel like it. Are we heading into that direction as well? I think uh, there are people who look at VR in that way. There are people, I mean, there's people who who try and recreate, for example, there have been examples of trying to recreate the presence of a lost child, for example, in in VR technology. I think um, all of it is possible. It's down to, as we're talking, as you're finding in all the ways you're talking about technology today, it's down to your intention. Our Mm. intention with this... uh, I mean, and then it will be about maintaining that file, which is a, you know, that's a technical point. But say, um, but say you wanted to gift to your family messages that where they would have to put a headset on in 10 years time, provided someone kept up that file, made it more, you know, transferred it into the latest technology. Yes, there would be a way of delivering that onward. Just don't make me responsible for that because it'll all go no, pear-shaped. No, me either. That's a tricky one to do. I mean, oh. we, were looking, 
let's say we were looking at this. What we wanted to create was the was the was the return of the familiar and the gift of the familiar when you're in, as we know, what is a very isolated. No matter how wonderful are those medical staff, yeah. it's not your own home. It's not your own family. It's not the music you listen to or the window that you look out of when you feel sad on a gloomy day. And so we can give that back. Oh, the people that we have met today. Lynette, thank you so much for speaking with us, spending time. We know you've stepped out of a, a workshop today to join us and thank you so much for the work that you do. It's incredible. My pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. Lynette Walworth, I feel like I need to take a big, deep breath after that. Australian artist, Emmy Award winning VR filmmaker. I mean, intention is so right. I sort of, I jotted down that word and and circled it a few times. Mm. And both from Richard Bassett, who we spoke to before, you know, his intentions are right and are there for the people, for both the dead and for the living. And Mm. Lynette is exactly the same. And Kate in uh, Mount Burnett has just said, and I think we're both the same, Daniel. She said, I've actually just had to pull over my car to have a cry. That dinner party story hits so hard. Why would anyone want to take that headset off? It's a remarkable gift. It's, like I said to Lynette, I think that's the most intimate film you could ever make. You're making it for one, you're making it for a family, but that's a time capsule that will live forever. But I just want to make sure I'm not involved in keeping it either because it'll get put on a USB, it'll go (laughs) through my jeans in the wash, (laughs) and then all of a sudden I've lost it forever. But it (laughs) did make me think, like, these moments in history that you could capture and share. Like, what would it be like, you know, in, in 30, 40 years' time to go back and witness the 2017 AFL Grand Final. Like you hadn't, you may not have been born, but you can go and see Dusty tear it up on the G. Like that's what I want it for as uh, yeah, well. And in just a very the idea way. of looking at these advances and machine learning for good as opposed to evil. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt here with you and Melbourne Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warnable. We're looking at death and tech and AI. And you know what's weird? As we mm. both thought we we're going to be a bit freaked out by today's yep. conversation. We won't we? We were both fair. like, okay, let's strap ourselves in. Oh, yeah. And I was a little bit freaked out at the start. <laughs> but all of a sudden, it feels like a really beautiful conversation. Like, I, I'm surprised. It, we thought this conversation would take a turn and we were discussing before we started the various ways that it could go, but never did I think chills from heartfelt moments would where we'd be going. I thought there'd be a lot of fear, there'd be a lot of um, tech talk that's probably way above my head anyway, but I didn't think that this would make me actually feel so comforted talking about yes. death. Because it's about the people that we love and how we can stay connected and I guess not forget them and preserve their memories. Let's cross to the United States where a lot of leading research and work is being done in this area. And one woman who is the founder of Storyfile, her name is Heather Mayo-Smith. And you've basically created an AI video where we can interact with our loved ones who have died, not through an avatar, but through, I guess, that particular person, a, a, a machine learned person that you love. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing, Heather. We have developed a system um, that you can interview your parents, your loved ones, you know, your aunts, your mentors, people that have meant a lot to you in your lifetime. And you can interview, video record their interview. And then that provides future generations the ability to have a conversation with that video with the with those clips that they've with the answers that they've given so if i want to know what you know what you know about your great great grandparents and what their lives were like i can actually ask you at any point you know now five years from now 50 years from now and you'll you'll respond you'll tell me their story and that will live on in you and that will transmit to future generations. Heather, this sounds incredibly futuristic and I'm back to feeling scared again. <laughs> what do we do in no, a situation? Don't get scared. Don't get scared. Don't <laughs> it's too get late. Scared. It's too scared. late. <laughs> One thing that I find really fascinating about this is machine learning takes what you give it and it can learn from that and make certain mm. assumptions. But what happens if I'm yeah. trying to talk to my great-great-grandparent about something that hasn't been inputted? Is there 
an element of risk here yeah. that great yeah. grandparent might go off script yeah. and it could actually cause harm? No. So our company is all about the authentic you. It's your voice, your story for all time. We don't edit anything. We don't do any deep fakes of you. So obviously the data, you're right. It, it, machine learning will take data. It'll, it'll extrapolate things. It'll, it'll assume things. But for us, the data is finite. So whatever you've recorded is going to be your time capsule basically forever. And you can, you know, you can ask grandpa to tell the, you know, the favorite story that he tells everything, you know, every holiday that the family's together. You can tell, ask them questions about their lives. And you know what's really interesting is people that go through this for the interviewee and the interviewer the interviewee learns things that they never, ever knew mm. because they're asking questions that they don't normally ask in everyday conversation. And the person being interviewed doesn't necessarily always think of their life, you know, in, in continuum. And you're, you're being asked about your childhood. You're being asked to remember things about people that you might not have thought about in a while. You're being asked questions about your values and how you how you view the world and decisions that you've made throughout your life that you can now reflect on. And that's an amazing gift to be able to have those conversations and, and know those reflections. And I guess it's a, a way to preserve your family history. I mean, how many of us at some point yeah. have thought, I need to sit down. I remember mm-hmm. deciding that I wanted to sit down with my pa, with my grandfather, and mm-hmm. record yeah. his story. Of, he is a Kokoda mm-hmm. veteran, and I wanted his story, and I wanted yeah. it to hear. I wanted yeah. to hear it from him. Um, And I didn't want to hear it secondhand. So being ensuring that you have Mm -hmm. that truth and those stories. So is this kind of just like an AI version of our family trees and our family history? Yeah. We call it like a living album. So imagine if you had, you know, your parents, your, you know, partner's parents, uh, your all four sets of your grandparents. So you, you keep adding to it every generation and you will have a living a living family tree that you can go in, you can learn something about that person, see who that person was, see their body language, see, look into their eyes and actually connect with them and feel like you've connected with them instead of just reading it, you know, in an autobiography or reading text in a, in a photo album per se, you can also take photos and have your loved ones tell you who's in those photos, what was happening, the story behind those photos. Mm. And then you can add that to your story file as well. Mm. Well, the chills are back. Heather Mayo-Smith, thank you very much for joining us on the Conversation Hour. Well, thank you. I hope everybody everybody tries out Story File Life, and good luck to you all with it. <laughs> thank you. Um, but it is, it is truly an, um, an amazing gift to give to people. Heather, thank you so much. Thank Dan- you. Thank Dan- you for having me. Daniel, it's fascinating when we have all of the different elements that we've spoken about today, whether mm-hmm. it be you know an AI version of yourself where you can interact with people once you yep. have died through to virtual reality. You would have to be in a particular stage of your life and your grief process in order to do that, I think, because mm. if I'm honest, I still have video of my mum on my phone that I can't watch, right, because I can't yeah. see her moving and hear her laugh and talk even yet. I'm still not ready to mm. hear that or to see that. So you would need to be at a certain part where you can be like, okay, because they would be like they'd be in front of you yeah, and it would and be confronting. and. I guess the other point is that when do you start making this likeness? Do you want to make this likeness of yourself at the end of your life? I mean, I kind of want to go back and, and speak to 30-something-year-old me and then make no, it again in 10 years. Oh. <laughs> yeah, actually, you're probably right. I don't need to see that. I don't think anyone needs to see that again, though, to be fair. But, I mean, when do you create this likeness of yourself? I don't know. Is it- yeah, do you do it over time? Yeah, now I'm getting freaked out again, Michelle. (laughs) You know, and then you're kind of planning your death and then your brain starts to implode and then you'd be thinking about something and go, oh, I better put that on the file because that's something good that the grandkids will want to know about. But I also need to do it when I'm skinny as well. I don't (laughs) want to go back and have this avatar that's locked in of me who's overweight and then I look back and go, oh, come on, Daniel, you were better than that, mate. (laughs) It's like the 32-year-old Tom Hanks, you know. That's it, exactly right. Where is the peak Tom Hanks? We were talking about this earlier because... 
so much of what all of this AI is happening is there's so much of Tom Hanks already out there, captured motion image, there's his voice, there's his likeness. He said in a podcast just a couple of days ago that there's a there's a high chance that Tom Hanks, as we know him now, could just exist in cinema ad nauseum forever. There's that much data going around. And that's what makes me a little bit nervous. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to our last guest. Marley Vieira is a lawyer with Nest Legal. And Marley, I want to hit you with a hard question first up. All of my okay. digital information is online. I'm sure my likeness is there. My voice is here on the radio. How do I make sure that when I die, nothing bad happens to my likeness? How do you die digitally and do it safely? Yeah, I mean, great question. And it is a hard question. Thanks so much for that. Um, so, look, essentially, there are products out there that you can store your data online with at the moment. But something that I'm finding is that they're often subscription-based. So the question happens, what happens if you stop paying that subscription, right? It's this ever-evolving space at the moment. So my recommendation to my clients is to have a cause in your will that deals with your digital assets and appoints someone that you trust to deal with it and also to have a digital asset register, whether it's online or in paper, so that your loved Do most people have that? I, I don't. Um, it's something that's becoming more and more common. Um, and I think that, I mean, certainly a lot of my clients are really interested in it. We always have clauses in our wills about it. And when you bring up that conversation in conference with it, they're often struck and like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Even things like Spotify. Um, it's just so broad. There's a text here that says, uh, Telstra is just not listening when told of death. They continue to charge two months after the mobile phone, even when the phone was not used. And that's from Dave in Seaford. And when we look at billing for deceased people and digital footprints that we have now, this has been a problem forever, Marley, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And your loved ones aren't going to know who they have to cancel your various accounts and subscriptions with unless they've got that information readily available to them. So if you get your bills through your email, if you get your bills in paper, that you know, two different ways. But so many people do things over email these days that there's not a paper trail. They don't know that they have to call Telstra to close down those accounts. And there are so many places that we subscribe to and, and link ourselves to and pay bills to here, there and everywhere. Marley, what do we need to do to make sure just nuts and bolts, if something happens to us, something happens to our loved one, how do we make sure that digitally we're safe? What are the sort of key tenants we need to look at? Uh, the main things I would do is, yeah, have your digital assets register, set out all of those bits and pieces, make sure people can access your, um, your phones, your smart devices, uh, you can appoint legacy contacts throughout Facebook and Instagram and Apple so that that person is authorised to look after your data in a safe way. If something happens to you, they can alert the organisation something's happened to you and your data is secured. What about the idea of still having pages, whether it be Facebook or Instagram, whatever it may be? In memoriam, that kind of thing. Yes. Mm. Which Have you ever come across one of those accounts? Well, I've seen accounts that are, look like they're running from a person who I know is dead. Yeah, I mean, with, with Facebook in particular, you've got, you've got two options. You can appoint your legacy contact through your settings and then that person can either start this memorialised account for you or you can elect to have your account permanently deleted. So if you keep it memorialised, essentially the content stays on Facebook to the audience that was, it was already shared with. So your settings aren't changed in any way. So if you've got quite a public Facebook account, that all that information is available. If you've privatised it and it's quite locked down, then it may be just your friends that can see that information. We're speaking with Marley Vieira, a lawyer with Nest Legal. Marley, I want to change tact a little bit here. We've been talking about AI and some of the ethical concerns that come in with machine learning, with capturing your image, storing it on a cloud, and then having essentially a machine take over some, uh, an element of an avatar that could be your person. What are the mm. legal ethical mm. concerns around something like this? We've seen just how far deep fakes can go now uh, mm. thinking about the next step of, of digital likenesses impersonating people, um, that's where the heebie-jeebies come in. Is there a legal <laughs> yeah. framework that actually secures people here? Um, look, that's a really good question and not something I think that I'm really able to answer. But from an estate planning perspective, I think that it's 
AI and online wills, they're not part of a broader estate planning conversation, right? AI can do so much, but it you really need the nuanced sort of expertise um, with different things. You know, it, uh, an AI drafted will or an online will may deal with assets that can't even be gifted in a will appropriately, um, like joint property or assets owned by a, another entity. So I think there's still a long way to go before that will be really a major tool for estate planning solicitors. And when we have spoken to all of our guests today, like right at the beginning with Richard about how quickly AI is moving in forensics, for example, and just how quick you have to be to keep up. And then you bring it back to something that we are all pretty much a part of, which is social media and how quickly we all try to keep up with that or choose to log out altogether. In the world, you know, in the, in the world that you walk in, in terms of protecting us legally, how quickly are you guys having to manoeuvre and shift at the moment to either create laws, change laws or advocate for laws to keep us safe as digitally we have everything out there and when we die, how we can protect not only ourselves but our loved ones? Yeah, I'm, like I said, it's ever evolving and yeah, it is something that we just need to keep up with all the time. But it's great. I can see in the legal community the conversations are being had um, and it's just a matter of making sure the clients are aware of that as well so that they are protected. But it is, yeah, it's ever evolving and I don't even know if there'll ever be a concrete answer. No, I don't that. think there will It be. freaks me out too. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm glad. If nothing else, I feel a lot safer that you were freaked out as well. Marley Vieira, thank you very much for joining us on the Conversation Hour. Thank you. This text here says, when my mum was dying, I wrote down some of her memories, but I wasted so much time. I wish I'd just recorded her. Oh, to be able to turn back the clock. I feel like I have not only learnt so much today, but my eyes have just widened a little bit. You know, Mm. there's a lot of fear and scepticism. It's the future and it's moving at such a rapid rate that I'm so behind, Daniel Miles. You know, (laughs) I just feel like I'm like, you know what, I'm so behind. But when you think about how it can be used in these really practical ways with good intention and for Mm. human beings, you know, for our emotional well-being, I think... A lot of the time we don't think about AI and machine learning helping us emotionally. Yeah, we're so caught up in optimization of life with AI. How can I get this 30 seconds back? How can I be more efficient? How can I do this? But I guess one element that we haven't spoken about is how can I make myself and my loved ones feel a little bit better? And, and that's, I mean, I guess maybe that's not as much AI mm. as it is recording and keeping these histories but the idea of um i guess the one thing i can't get out of my mind is the idea of sitting down at a pre-recorded dinner that you haven't been able to go to that that element of vr and the way that that can bring comfort mm. to your life yeah um that's an astounding thing that we probably don't think about or talk about enough no it's been I fascinating Absolutely. And Richard, at the beginning, when he was talking about Kaolack after the tsunami there, and I spent some time in Kaolack and the people there are just so beautiful. And to know that that process could have been made easier for them uh, when they still live that tsunami day in, day out with all of the memories that are there. It's been incredible.